Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I am presenting a two-part episode on how to refer to clinical psychologists and to decipher those long reports sometimes we get. I don't know about you, but I've sometimes had reports as long as 30 pages, and a parent will come in and ask me to decipher what this means. And I'll be honest, I've struggled with that. I'm inviting Dr. Chris Barnes to help us understand how to best use these reports. Dr. Barnes is a licensed clinical psychologist whose clinical work is focused on integrative clinical assessment. As an assessment psychologist, Dr. Barnes is passionate about effective communication and customer service. Early in his career, he identified that effective communication is necessary, yet difficult to engage. Often, psychological reports are too long and use language most can't comprehend. As a result, he is in an ever-flowing state of creativity and translates this into his clinical work through refining clinical assessment documents and leveraging technology to meet the needs of providers and other stakeholders. Chris's hope is to increase the efficiency of clinical communication without sacrificing clinical care. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Chris Barnes. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Doing great. Another beautiful day in Michigan. Loving it. <laughs> well, it's April and it's a hard freeze and my tulips are bowing over. So I'm hoping they'll recover, but we'll, we'll see, right? Um, we never know when um, we're going to actually get spring. I know every year they tell us don't plant things until after Memorial Day. And then we get those 70 degree days and you're like, oh, that's not really true. And it's really true. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time. I know you're a really busy guy and you are a psychologist and I have worked with you and just wanted to have an opportunity to talk a little bit about, you know, partnering with psychologists, particularly, and the different kinds of therapists. I think physicians, we kind of lump you all together, like sure. a therapist is a therapist. And then there's social workers and counseling psych and master psych and PhD mm -hmm. psych. So Tell us a little bit about how you became a psychologist and then maybe the differences in those kind of different trainings. Absolutely. You know, I think my road to becoming a psychologist, and I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, was a bit bumpy. I um, grew up here in Kalamazoo and had a rough go with it at high school and somehow managed to weasel my way into college. And <laughs> I, I, went, I went to college not knowing what I was going to do. And you know, I guess when you go to Western Michigan and you don't know what you're going to do, you become a business major. And that's what I did. And I didn't really like it and came across the Psych 100 class and said, oh, this is kind of interesting and pursued that a bit and decided, you know, maybe I'll just do a psychology major and I'm not going to waste those business classes. So I'll become a business minor. And then I came across statistics, which has, was absolutely my inner nerd being expressed. Oh my and God. So that's like my inner, I, it, that is like my worst thing. I just even <laughs> start talking about statistics and my heart rate goes up. 
Uh, but it was interesting for me because when I think back uh, on my process in college, it was like I loved psychology because it just kind of made sense. And it, I was uh, trained in behavioral psychology, which is like Uber, like it's all data all day, all day long. And the statistics obviously is very straightforward, black and white, well, black and white ish. And it just all made sense to me. So graduated with a, a degree in psychology with some statistics and realized that I could do nothing with a bachelor's degree in psychology. So I was, I'll never forget the day that I was with my, she's my wife now, but we were dating then she went to Michigan state sitting in a coffee shop. And I was thinking, you know, I really like the psychology stuff, but I don't know if I want to go get any advanced degrees. She goes, you better do it. Like, this is the one thing you've ever been passionate about. So you better do it. So I really attribute a lot of that encouragement to my partner. And then once I got into graduate school, it was just like, here we go. This is, this is absolutely what I love to do. Uh, because it was uh, a great split between science and human interaction, creating connections, uh, kind of walking through journeys with people together. So, you know, that's the, that's the 50 cent version of how I got to where I am. And then once I started actually practicing, that's when things just really blew up. And I didn't, I'm an assessment psychologist primarily, and I never knew that I was going to do that. I knew, I thought I was going to be a you know typical counselor, hang my shingle and do therapy all day. And then I came across some psychological assessment stuff and got trained in that. And that's where like my marriage between psychology and statistics and data really started to flourish. So help me understand a little bit, maybe the difference between like social work, counseling, psychology, clinical psychology, and then assessment psychology. What are there differences in what that looks like for patients? Yeah, totally. And I think about that in terms of like a gigantic Venn diagram where we're all focused on outcome you know, how do we help move people to a place and we all play different roles and have different theories that support the interventions that we utilize within those different spheres. Uh, so an assessment psychologist is oftentimes gathering data to help refine diagnosis, to help really clarify what particular interventions may be necessary. Counseling psychologist does that perhaps without really objective measures necessarily, but they're still very good at what they do. And they walk people through different journeys to create decreased frequency, intensity, duration of symptoms. A social worker can do the exact same thing. They just potentially do it in different settings with perhaps a more acute perspective. Uh, so there's a tremendous degree of overlap across those different theoretical places, but yet the outcome is still like, how do we assist in the growing process with folks? Well, and, you know, we see in pediatrics so many kids with behavioral concerns and, you know, that's sort of a trash can term. I mean, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, it can be so many different things and, you know, you don't want to just slap a diagnosis on, oh, this kid's not doing well in school. It must be ADHD. And, and a lot right. of parents, I think, come in, you know, kind of thinking that and, you know, sometimes therapists, especially those that do assessments can kind of help sort that out. When do you think we should partner up with a psychologist to consider an assessment? I think, you know, that takes, we can answer that question probably five or six different ways, uh, but well, we have a whole podcast. So, <laughs> and I like, I like to talk too. So when we consider partnering up, I think is when there's a few different things. When we're looking for some diagnostic clarity, if there's just something a little bit muddy, uh, because you, you guys have access to pretty decent questionnaires that are researched. You know, I'm thinking Vanderbilt, some of these other things that can, can pretty, get a pretty good cursory understanding of what's happening at a symptom level. But the, I, I, as you very well know, 
there's so much symptom overlap across a lot of these conditions, a lot of these diagnoses. And in my world, we really talk about something uh, regarding uh, specificity and sensitivity when it comes to utilizing certain measures. So we have to understand, you know, it, are the things we're using, are they picking up on you know, dysfunction or some sort of uh, symptomology? And if they do pick up on something, how confident we are based on that measure that it's actually measuring what it says it is. So, you know, the Vanderbilt is loved in the pediatric world. And I think that we probably misdiagnosed a tremendous amount of children with ADHD based on Vanderbilt scores alone, because so many things can look like ADHD on the surface. ADHD in my world, I mean, that's primarily what I do is 90% of my work is ADHD evaluations. And there's a disproportionate number of people I work with that don't meet the criteria for ADHD after a, a more thorough assessment, despite, you know, spiking huge scores on Vanderbilt's. So, well, and I think we have to remember the difference between screening tools and diagnostic mm -hmm. tools. So screening tools are just looking for potential problems. Sure. And whereas diagnostic tools help make the diagnosis based on validity. And, and I mm -hmm. think, you know, uh, medicine relies on those same measures but when it comes to kind of the mental health, behavioral health, I think we get a little squishy on what does that mean and help. Totally. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. And just out of curiosity, of the number of folks that come in or kids that come in for ADHD evals, what's the percent you think that actually meet the criteria? Well, I am biased in this situation because I think that ADHD is overdiagnosed, not even in my world, but like just in the world, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, most people throw ADHD at it. Recently, given the pandemic and a lot of the stay at home stuff, I think we've seen an increase in the diagnosis of it. But I think it's because more people are now seeing it in themselves because like they're not being distracted at work and calling it a work distraction. They're stuck at home. And they're saying, oh my goodness, I can't concentrate. So I think we're catching it a lot more now. Uh, but prior to this, and I don't have direct access to my own data right now, but, you know, 75% of the people that came in maybe met the criteria. I've diagnosed way more anxiety, way more behavioral conditions than ADHD proper. Interesting. I saw a great TikTok thing my daughter sent me, and it was about adult ADHD. And it sure. showed this woman like walking through her house like, oh, I forgot I need to put the screws in, blah, 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 and fix this. And oh, there's some stuff on the counter. Mm -hmm. And gee, maybe I should change the background on my computer sure. screen. And it was hilarious. And you're like, oh my God, that is so true. <laughs> Absolutely. And now the question is, do those people really meet the criteria for ADHD? Or is it just like, you know, cabin fever? There's so many right. things that at the surface can present with some of these disorders. And that's why I think where our collaborations can be really helpful because, you know, parents are coming in describing situations to pediatricians and you're going on what you know and what the data is that's being brought to you. And oftentimes we need to fall back on a bit more objective uh, measures to be used. Right. It just helps and tease apart the, the overlap. And I think there's so much to be said for the, you know, the history taking and the other piece that's really hard right now is the Vanderbilt you know, you're supposed to get it from two sources, mm -hmm. you know, primarily, ideally the teacher. Well, yeah. you know, these teachers, how are they going to make those assessments? I mean, so hard. who can, who can pay attention to zoom all day? I mean, I certainly can't, maybe I have adult ADHD, who knows? <laughs> um, but you know, so how do you, how do you really make a diagnosis? I mean, you get a sense of mm -hmm. how a kid is function, but you know, it brings into question, like you mentioned, could it be anxiety? Could it be depression? Is there a lot of family chaos and turmoil? 
you know, I mean, if a family doesn't know where they're going to sleep, they're not going to be paying attention totally. in school. And now Absolutely. they're not even in school. So, so there's that. Well, talk about the psychological assessment. When you do testing, what does that actually encompass? And when should we consider this an option? Well, the, the process itself, it's, it can be complicated depending on the referral question. So always knowing what that referral question is automatically helps us orient ourselves as psychologists. You know, what questions are we asking? What measures are we typically going to use? Prior to many of us working from home, it would be a three to four part process. The first piece would be like an interview. So we'd be chatting with the parents. If the child was old enough to really have good verbal skills and a good and some good insight into their own functioning, we would include them in, in that as well. But that's really a historical perspective over the, um, the presenting symptoms, how they've developed, when did we first start to notice them, and uh, what environments are they really presenting themselves as well. If we're seeing folks just have dysfunction in the school setting, but like they're cool at home, social skills are good, there's nothing really going on in other environments, well, we might be able to attribute that more to an environmental issue than something that persists across those environments. So the, I believe as an assessment psychologist, and this sounds a little bit wild, but the, the diagnostic interview is probably our most useful tool. It's probably our best tool uh, to get a really good understanding of um, how this is all developed. Fortunately, we get more time to do that than you all do. You don't get the yeah. you don't get the hours that we do to do that. Although it's interesting in medicine, I think at least what I was raised on, and that was pre a lot of the imaging and you know more sophisticated testing that we do, is that you know that the diagnosis is in the history, you know, and that and I think sometimes as physicians we lose that sure. and just want to go right to the you know, to the, to the test and forget maybe to look at the patient and examine mm -hmm. the patient. So the first step would be the, the interview. And then yep. if you have suspicions, then what's next? Well, so after the interview, as a clinician, we're really developing some hypotheses based on the information we have, which then fuels what measures we're choosing after that. You know, most assessment psychologists have their favorite tools. Now they're all very researched and, you know, we pick them because they're good, not because we just like them. And so many people will have a standard battery, especially if you're answering the same question uh, repeatedly. But following that interview is when things get a little bit, um, uh, we don't shoot from the hip. That sounds way worse than I want it to, but we have to start saying, well, you know, this question came up, there's this flare of this disorder. What else are we going to add to our standard battery? Now that oftentimes will result in uh, either one or two assessment sessions that range from two to five hours each. So it's, it's kind of torture for anyone that goes through it. And we get really good data though. Uh, not only are we collecting that objective data, we're really getting a good view on how people participate in that. So we get great behavioral observations. We get to see what people do when they can't do things. Like when they notice they're hitting their wall, how do they react to that? What are some of the emotional reactions that occur? So it puts us, uh, in a place to collect some really good objective data through the measures, but these behavioral observations become an important piece of the process as well. So if I was taking a test on statistics and decided I should start crying, then you would have some some thoughts on that. <laughs> well, yeah, it, just, it gives us some in, it gives us some insight in how do folks interact with their world when they get frustrated or what's their emotion regulation skills and you know how does this play out? Well, it also makes me think about and and when I tell parents about, Maybe we need to look at some other assessments in that, you know, 
could it be a learning disability? I mean, if you're in a classroom, I always use this example. If you're in a classroom and somebody's speaking a foreign language like Japanese that you don't speak, it's going to be super hard for you to pay attention. Mm-hmm. It may not mean that you have ADHD. You just don't understand. Absolutely. So you're going to tune out after a while. And so I sometimes offer up, you know, the psychological testing could help us identify maybe what this is or is not. Sometimes the is not part is mm-hmm. important. You know, I, and I have often said, you know, I can tell you what it isn't. I'm not sure what Absolutely. it is, but I can tell you what it isn't. Absolutely. And, you know, that's where the final part of this process really comes into play is that feedback session. Uh, because oftentimes we can take a lot of things off the table. And then what's left on the table, we get to put another microscope over either through just ongoing observation or even some more strategic use of inter- of objective data collection as well. And so... so- I was just going to say, so when I get this te- the, the reports back from you guys, it varies from, from psychologist to psychologist, but mm-hmm. honestly, I have had some that were like 30 plus pages and I'll be honest, sometimes I've gone right to the assessment and the um, recommendations because all the other stuff seems so wordy and, mm-hmm. you know, so what does a standard battery look like? And is there a way to kind of trim this down so we get what we need? Because oftentimes a parent will say, what does this mean? And I'm mm-hmm. like trying real hard. I mean, I I have worked some with some um, psychology doctoral students that helped me decipher a little bit of it. So I feel like I know something, but I'm not always feeling super savvy about that. Yeah. You know, a hundred different testing psychologists will give you a hundred different reports and they'll all look exactly not the same. <laughs> They're so, so different. Yeah. Love that. Exactly not the same. <laughs> I am. Um, I've seen 30 page reports that say nothing. And I've seen three page reports that you're like, oh my God, this is gold. I mean, it was just so succinct. So y'all don't necessarily have the time to be sieving through 20, 30, even 15 pages at times. So effectively you want to think about, you know, what did the psychologist do? Why did they do it? And how does it all fit together? So what we did was the measures that we used. Hey, there's some question about whether this is ADHD. Okay, well, let's use an IQ test to see if there's any dysfunction in these certain areas that we would typically see associated with ADHD. So working memory, processing speed, et cetera. The IQ test also helps rule out any intellectual difficulties or cognitive impairment. Uh, We'll want to see, well, there was some Question whether or not anxiety is part of the picture. Okay, well, let's throw some of those measures at it. Let's potentially use a personality assessment to tease apart how much of this is some impairment for mood, et cetera. So you want to know, you know, what we did, the why we did it is to answer some of those hypotheses we had in that initial interview. So if I give an interview with a parent and, you know, that, hey, this kid thinks we think they have ADHD, but yet there's also this, you know, maybe there's a trauma history. There was some parent parental discord. Maybe there was something else going on. Well, we have to start figuring out how we're going to either confirm or refute that as a part of the clinical picture, a contributing uh, variable. And then what does it all mean? That's where the summary comes in. And I argue with some of my colleagues about this, whether or not physicians should just run to the summary and read it and be done, or if they should sort of pay some more emphasis to other parts of the report. I think it depends on the referral question. If I receive something that says, hey, Chris, you know, patient X, Y, or Z, we think they have ADHD, can you please please confirm the diagnosis. Well, then you jump to the summary on that because it's going to say the referral question was X, Y, or Z. This is what we did based on the information available to us at this time. We can either confirm or we don't believe that this is ADHD and we think it's, you know, A, B, or C. 
Now, the more complex questions, the more differential diagnostic questions, like, hey, like point me in the right direction here because we're feeling a little bit lost. That's where I think that providers should, you know, take a moment, maybe even have their MA read it if they can, just to give a brief summary over, or even more importantly, call the psychologist. I think that there is such a degree of detail that can be communicated so quickly over a phone call that can't be communicated through some sort of written documentation. And I've had wonderful three-minute conversations with providers that says way more than any 15-page report that I've ever given. That is really good advice. And plus, it's just, it's more fun. I mean, I get to know you. I know your style. I can feel like I know what might be a good fit for a patient is, mm-hmm. you know, is this going to be something where the parent's going to be comfortable talking with this particular therapist? And do I, do I feel comfortable with the explanation style I think is helpful too. And you can't get that from something written. Absolutely. Th- there's something to be said for, for that. I think sometimes we worry about, you know, playing phone tag and neither oh, sure. of us have a lot of time, but I would certainly agree that a person to person, you know, is really valuable. The other thing I was wondering and very curious is that three page report that was gold. How do you get people to do that? Because, <laughs> you know, honestly, I, I know when I was a medical student, like my H&Ps were like awesome. They were mm-hmm. mega detailed, but, you know, who's going to read five pages and mm-hmm. is it all pertinent? You know, and then fast forward to where it's maybe not as detailed and probably could be more. So there's a, a happy medium. But how do we get to this three page, you know, yeah. fabulous report? Well, it's about breaking down old habits more than anything. Because I think we've all been trained to over document and that's okay. Like there's not a, it's not a deficit necessarily, but sometimes we're wasting time and energy doing that. So this report was, you know, you know, patient so-and-so is referred for a differential workup regarding diagnosis X, diagnosis Y, based on the history, we think that this is going on. There's no evidence of the big rule outs, right? There's no evidence of trauma. There's no evidence of this. There's no evidence of that. We administered X, Y, and Z measures. These are the results and it's summarized. It's not like 15 pages of data. And based on the information available to us, we think this is what's going on. And the research suggests we do A, B, and C. Yeah. I I think that's, that's super helpful. I know a lot of those long reports include descriptions of what the tests are. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who reads that, you know, like the Vineland is blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. You know, that's a lot of pages. I don't know. Maybe the parents re- read it. Yes, but That's exactly right. Because I think, unfortunately, this report is written for many different sources. You know, it's for a teacher. It's for a parent. It's for the patient if they're old enough to read and understand. It's for the provider. It's for all these different people which is why there is a small movement here. Just, I don't know how big it is really, but some of my colleagues and I are talking about how do you parse these gigantic reports into two or three different reports without having to write three or four different reports uh, because that's just too cumbersome. So you have you know a, a parental report that breaks down, okay, because they scored here, this is kind of what this means. And this means this is their impairment. And then these are the interventions. Whereas a provider doesn't necessarily need that level of detail it, all right, we're confirming this diagnosis, we're suggesting X, Y, or Z, and then y'all take it from the medical side. And then there's teachers who want to have educational supports put in place, et cetera. And so it's about how do we write it the most efficient, efficiently for the bigger crowd? That's the, the real big struggle on our end, which is why we do get these 30, pages, 30 page reports, because it's for the parent, the teacher, the provider, it's yeah. for everyone. 
that makes sense. I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective, but you're right. It's different audiences need different bites. Mm-hmm. I I do think, you know, and again, maybe it's having worked with some clinical psychologists. I personally like looking at kind of the breakdown of the IQ. I don't know that I always get all the different, you know, subcategories, you know, so I might gloss over those, but I, you know, would maybe look at the rat or, you know, the achievements and just have a little bit of a gist. But is there like a cheat sheet somewhere that would say, you know, this is kind of a high level overview of what these different tests mean? Absolutely. There's so many different um, theories of IQ, sort of like this nebulous thing out there, but there's a few that are really, really well accepted. The Weschler being the primary. So, you know, I hate to say this, but you could go to Dr. Google and get a PDF on that real quick. And a good summary in a psych report should say, you know, this patient demonstrates deficits regarding verbal comprehension, which means, you know, Joey has a hard time in these settings in these particular environments, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, what I try to do is provide more of a narrative report instead of, you know, here's the Weschler and it does this and there's 10 sub, uh, subtests and they loaded this different way and there's confidence intervals and all these things uh, like that's a, and for most circumstances, that's a waste of time to read through those things. So when we can re- write a report that says Joey has difficulty doing X, Y, or Z based on these scores, we think that we should intervene this way. I think that provides more guidance for the folks reading it. Well, and I think when I've had reports, for example, a really bright kid, so say they have an IQ of like 118. Yeah, sure. So they have a really high IQ and they do on their achievement tests, their reading scores are really great, but their math scores are really low. And you're sort of like, for a kid who has an IQ of 118, this doesn't make sense. I mean, Mm -hmm. that he is doing that low. So is there potentially you know, a learning disability there. Is that, do I have that right? Sure. Absolutely. You know, there's two main ways that historically we have diagnosed learning disabilities. There's something called response to intervention, which is what we're really leaning on these days. We never really run exclusively to a learning disability diagnosis. We want to see like, all right, there's a, there's a suspicion here. Let's give a few different tiers of intervention based on what we're seeing. And if there's a response, okay, then maybe that's confirming in the past, uh, this is probably not that far in the past, but there was, you know, we would take an IQ and we compare that to achievement scores. And if there was some sort of statistically significant discrepancy, then, you know, folks may throw around a learning disability diagnosis. Uh, we don't do that anymore. In fact, that's, that's not happening much, but there is a place for assessment to help fuel the trajectory of more data cl- collection in situations like that. So we have a smart kid, they're great in reading, they're struggling in math. Well, that could mean it's a learning disability. It could also mean they just don't like math or it's boring or they're just like disengaging because it's not exciting. So they haven't had the ability to acquire the mathematical ability along the way, which is why we always want to make sure that we're seeing something on the surface, but we're diving way deeper to figure out what could be contributing to that. So in that situation, and I have an upcoming um, episode with Dr. Stephanie Nelson, who's also going to talk a lot more about neuropsych testing and a little Mm -hmm. bit deeper dive on learning disabilities. But in that situation where you get this discrepancy, what do you do next? How, How do you guys tease that out? 
I think it's involving the the family, the parents, the educational team. It's identifying what resources are available. It's making a real collaborative decision moving forward and then supporting that based on research. I think at the end of the day, we have to figure out what is the intended outcome here. And although I do diagnostic work, I don't know as if the diagnosis is the outcome that we're really all looking for. It's like, how do we get someone to a place where they don't have to struggle so much or they don't have all these emotional concerns secondary to inability to engage certain environments. No, it's really treating the outcome necessarily. Well, and I think that's true with a lot of mental health. I mean, you can call my least favorite diagnosis is ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. To me, that just is like a kid behaving badly. That doesn't help you at all. It's not like you go, oh, ODD gets X treatment. I mean, Mm -hmm. you really have to know like, is it because they're anxious? Is it because mm-hmm. there's trauma? Is, you know, so many others. So it's really more like symptom relief and what the underlying kind of driver is for those symptoms. So mm-hmm. I, it sounds like it's a little bit the same with learning kind of Absolutely. what your basis, basic strengths are and your mm-hmm. just innate abilities. And then there are other things that affect how you perform. No doubt about it no doubt about it. When you think about kids who have poor sleep, or maybe they have a sleep disorder and, you know, it presents at certain times of the day for them, but yet that time of the day is always math or, or it's whatever. And they become dysregulated and they disengage. Well, we could call that a learning disability because they're not performing where we think they should based on their IQ and their grade level and whatever, but we'd be doing that child and that family a disservice by wrapping, wrapping that label around it. Yeah. I, the more we talk about this, the more I'm like, huh, this is kind of complicated. It's not so complicated. A, <laughs> it's not a simple thing. And it it really does take more than just me mm-hmm. thinking, you know, you know, a parent comes in and says they're having either academic problems or behavioral problems at school. And therefore it must be ADHD. Well, to kind of confirm that or investigate it, it's going to take more than just me. Yeah. And, yeah. and part, and, and then the whole other piece that we really haven't talked about is the school and what they do with these tests, you know, do that, you know, what, what, what happens then? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, just like with every different psychology, psychological report, you're going to see a different thing with every school system I've interacted with. We have different things that we see as well. You know, it's access to resources. It's what they accept, particular measures they accept or don't accept. And I'll see many parents come to me because they're just fed up with a school system for whatever reason. Uh, they're not getting their needs met. They're not feeling heard. They're, there's a lot of things going on. And they'll seek me out individually to do some sort of evaluation about ADHD or learning disability. And you know that can be very helpful, but oftentimes we don't necessarily get much momentum because the school system doesn't necessarily want to do anything with the information we get anyway. So, you know, we have to look at this from a more systemic that 30,000 foot view and what are we doing here that's going to help and what are we going to do here that potentially could complicate things? I guess, you know, my question is, and I've talked with, you know, special education educators, why wouldn't they want this information when you've already done the work? And, you know, I mean, it's, it's expensive, it's time consuming. Mm-hmm. What would be the, the reason that a school system might not take what you've done? So it's not that they won't take the data necessarily. It's that they'll oftentimes not acknowledge the recommendations because Mm -hmm. it doesn't fit within their tiers of intervention. You know, maybe they observe the child differently and they disagree with the evaluation at some level or the outcome of the evaluation. Uh, So 
systemically, it gets very complicated. And so it's always important, uh, I think, from our end as either a clinical psychologist or a pediatrician to set folks up for that. You know, when you're describing, hey, I think that we should pursue this evaluation or you have this evaluation, what are you going to do with it? Well, we identify that there's not one outcome, that there are a multitude of possible outcomes that can happen. That one of those outcomes could be nothing happens and the school says no. And the opposite end of that is this is great. Thank you for doing this. Now we have information and let's set your child up for success. Now it happens more often than not somewhere in between those two. Well, and here's another example of where a phone call can be super helpful. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have I can't think of a situation where I didn't um, have someone at the school welcome my phone call. There have been a couple times when a parent has said that a, a teacher has been super dismissive. And there have been a couple times when I would have agreed with the parent um, that this was the case and, you know, that they've sort of written the kid off as being just a, a, sure. a nuisance sure. you know, or a difficult kid. But by and large, I think the teachers and the school psychologists, you know, they want to figure out what to do to help this kid. No doubt. I think deep down, we all have the best interests of our clients, of our patients, of the children, of the families and in our best interest. But there's all these systemic logistical concerns that just complicate this so, so incredibly. Well, and the resource piece, I think, is mm-hmm. another, you know, honestly, sometimes it seems easier to say, oh, well, maybe you know, a prescription for Ritalin is going to fix everything. And there are kids where it honestly is like a light switch oh, and no doubt. does make a difference. But I would say more often uh, that kind of pure ADHD is not that common. There's almost mm-hmm. always some other comorbidity. Sure. I think for me, most often I've seen anxiety. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I use this metaphor oftentimes, you know, a client, a child, will be just like sub threshold in terms of diagnosis. Like it's effectively they kind of look like they have ADHD, but they don't necessarily meet all the criteria. They're not showing impairment in certain areas, but yet something happens. You know, there's some extra stressors, there's some family discord, there's something, and then it just sort of pops them over. And so the question is, you know, what is the, what is the important intervention at that point? Uh, do we look at this from a broad-based perspective and we're looking at medical intervention com- with some counseling? Are we looking at scholastic intervention? Are we looking at family therapy? And that's where it can be really great to have a collaborative la- relationship with the provider or the assessor because that's when you have that open conversation. Wouldn't it be nice if it was easy to, after the testing was done, the data collections done, that we had like you know, an IEP meeting that they have at school where all the parties come to the table, Absolutely. you know, maybe come to the Zoom. Maybe it's more option now, you know, have a Zoom meeting and, you know, the psychologist, the school, the parent and the primary care are all there and say, mm-hmm. okay, how can we, you know, what does this mean? Wouldn't that be super? Yeah, it'd be great if that was like what we did all the time. It happens, but we typically see that with the more, well, I see it for two reasons. They're either a more complex case and there needs to be just more people at the table, or there's very persistent people as a part of the, the mix. Oftentimes a parent will be very persistent and it's, it's, they love their kid and they just want to see some action. But the old adage, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I think that's what oftentimes will precipitate those kinds of conversations. It depends on the degree of the squeak too. Yes, you know, indeed. Once you pop into adversarial, that often doesn't go well. <laughs> right, you know? indeed. But I, I have been to a couple of IEP meetings and you know, when you have the speech therapist and the PT and the OT and the teacher and the school psychologist, I mean, you get this like very different view 
of what the parent's always telling you. I mean, mm-hmm. and then you have the parent perspective and now you have kind of this, you know, whole image of the kid and, and what they do in different settings. No doubt. So yeah, well, maybe we'll move to the zoom analysis. And, yeah. And, and I think that would be nice for parents to hear. What are you all thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's as part of the plan. And as people on that treatment team, so to speak, it's interesting to also collaborate, collaborate throughout the process, because how many times have we all heard seven different stories around one thing? You know, the school hears one thing, the pediatrician hears one thing, the psychologist hears one thing. And for whatever reason, good or bad, it's just important to know, like, what is, what's the, what's the reason that we have that discrepancy across reports? Well, in really complex, medically complex kids, we, we often have teams. And I mean, I've had meetings with, you know, pulmonology and GI and the primary care and neurology on the complex kid. And you get so much out of that. Oh, for sure. And I sort of see the pediatrician primary care role as, you know, the orchestra leader, the conductor, because oftentimes I don't necessarily have the, the part, but I can conduct all the parts and pull it together. And I for think sure. that's where we can ha- you know, help be the the point person. One of the other things I was wondering, if I send a kid who I'm wondering about if they're on the autism spectrum, or even if I'm not, does standard testing that you guys do for, you know, an ADHD battery, for example, am, are you guys going to pick that up or do you have to do separate testing? What, what's that look like? Typically, if we're looking at a formal diagnosis of something with an autism spectrum disorder, there's a few hoops to jump through. There are some industry standard measures that are oftentimes needed to be used, the ADOS being one of them. And there, if we throw insurance into the mix and it gets even more complicated, some insurance companies won't recognize a diagnosis and they won't pay for treatment if this diagnosis doesn't come from uh, quality of uh, it's a center of excellence is what they're referring to them. So in Michigan, it's Helen DeVos, there's a few other, and they have seven, eight month, 12 month waiting lists. So, you know, when we think about the insurance piece, which we all love so much, it just adds a layer of complexity to it. But when I'm doing an ADHD assessment, like I mentioned earlier, there's so many things that look like ADHD on the surface and some high functioning folks on the spectrum can look like they have ADHD. So that's why that interview is so incredibly important because we can tease apart because there's some sensory stuff going on. Is there some social impairment? How does this look like when we're looking at rigidity, these sorts of things? And if we're getting a flare of that, then we can utilize some of our own screening measures to determine if we need to refer to these centers of excellence for a more formal diagnostic workup. So I've had a couple of situations where a parent came back and I think the parent often wonder about, could this be autism? They, you know, it's a hard diagnosis to mm-hmm. want to pin on your kid. I, it's funny, you know, ADHD is much more acceptable and yeah. possibly treatable than of course, autism and, you know, the core symptoms you can't really treat, but you know, the parents kind of wondering, and then to have to tell them, I know you had the psych test, but to really pin down on whether or not they meet the criteria of autism, you have to go to this other place. It feels like a lot of hoops for them to yeah. jump through. Yeah. And they don't always understand, well, I had that testing, you know, wasn't that enough? And sure. You know, when the answer is no, not really. That, yeah. That's and that's why, it. that's why even within our field, it's nice to have our colleagues that we keep close by, because if I know that I'm seeing Sally for uh, an ADHD evaluation, but there is some suspicion as to whether or not autism on, is on the on table. Well, then I call Dr. Joey and say, Hey, 
I've got this kid, you know, this is what's going on. I think I've ruled out a lot of things. There's this question here. I've already done the Weschler. I've already done these things. And then they just get to add to it. They get to add the necessary components to it. So that's why even with just our own subspecialties, it's nice to have those relationships where we can call folks and say, hey, I've done 90% of the work for you. Uh, let's see if we can get this family through the process a little bit more quickly. Yeah, and I think there's a medical model for that now that you're talking about that. Like, for example, if I had a kiddo that's having feeding difficulties and I do an upper GI and I do some labs and now they're still having problems and I send them to somebody that's more specialized, like a GI person, and now they do a scope. And the scope mm -hmm. isn't, you know, necessarily something I, it's not something I can do. So it's sort of that higher level. I don't know that we explain that that well to parents. Yeah, maybe I think they don't that's understand the, that. Or maybe we don't fully understand that to be able to explain it. Well, that's one thing that I've learned along the way is that in the beginning, we just didn't know what we didn't know. But now that I've done this long enough, it's about the patient experience. I think at the end of the day, we're customer service providers. We have specialties. We have either a medical specialty or whatever our specialties are. But the, the the experience the person has going going through it can make or break it. The data is the data, but how do we get folks more involved in the system and it's not so painful so they're not averse to the system down the road when they need it? Well, this makes me think that pediatricians, primary care, you know, nurse practitioners, PAs, who's ever talking to the family, we need to have a better understanding of what we're sending a kid for mm -hmm. and maybe some you know, scripting, I, you know, of course I always think about a handout, like, so that I can tell them, this is why I'm sending you. This is what you can expect. We may not have all of the different diagnoses, but we're trying to rule some things out and then we'll have a plan for next step. Absolutely. It's not necessarily kind of a one-stop shopping, which I think sometimes in our head, we're thinking like, okay, you're going to tell me what to do, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, including me, like, do I need to treat them with medication or not? Right. Right. And and maybe understanding that this is just an evaluation that's fairly broad and we're trying to narrow it down. So I, I don't know. Is there an information sheet out there for physicians, for providers to give to families? I think a lot of good assessing psychologists have these, you know, what to expect during testing. You know, what's the flow? You're going to get a phone call. You're going to set up these three or four appointments. We're going to talk insurance. And you're going to have these appointments where your child is in the room with us. And we're going to be doing these things and it's going to be like puzzles and games and questions. And you may be hungry or tired afterwards, but it's okay. And then we're going to have a feedback appointment. Absolutely. I think that a lot of great places have those already. I think we don't have them though. So if oh, I could tell a family like, Hey, I'm going to send your kiddo for this evaluation. These are some of the things that may, they may do. They're going to be there for a while. It, it can be expensive. And so you may mm. want to check with your insurance company we may not have a definitive answer. They may do some play with them and different, you know, I think if I had that, it would, first of all, it would make me sound smarter, but also it would set them up to see you. So yeah, I don't know totally. if that's out there. I'll have to look and see. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah I think, maybe it's already been done. Yeah. That's why we were talking earlier about having the phone call with the assessor, you know, just having that quick conversation, even just to establish a relationship, you just ask for it. Hey, Chris, do you have this? Yeah, let me send you over a stack of them. Or let me give you a digital copy that perhaps your receptionist can email to a client. Or right. no, we have that on our website. Just tell us to look at our website or whatever. Right. I, I'm wondering if maybe the American Academy of Pediatrics has mm -hmm. some information. I'll have to look into that. And if I find something, I will post it in the show notes. 
Well, go. this kind of brings me to what do you need from the medical side? I mean, if I was sending a kiddo, do you want me to send notes? Would you want me to call you? What can I do to, to give you more information or yeah, do you think, want, and do you want it? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we're data junkies. So the more information we get, the better uh, we get to refine our understanding of the person way better with more information. If I can leave this conversation, having everyone hear one thing, if you're referring someone for an assessment, please refine what question or what questions you want answered. I can't tell you how many times I get a referral or a conversation with a, a pediatrician. Hey, Chris, figure out what's going on. Well, I need, I need to know where your head's at first. Like, what do you think might be going on so I can help evaluate that more thoroughly? Because I, I, I'm a believer that if we throw our net wide enough, we're always going to find something and it may just be artifact. And so how do we now refine what we're really looking for so we can utilize the appropriate measures where we can have the most return on everyone's investment happen? So refining the question of the questions is the first and foremost, I think, primary thing people should be putting their emphasis into as they consider a referral. Well, and that would save some time. If I said, hey, I, I'm sending this kiddo to you, I'm really wondering if they may have autism. You might say on the front end, you know what, probably the best way to assess that is, you know, to, to send them somewhere else. Absolutely. And that might be, you know, something to kind of tease out. But I like that. And I think you're right that we're sometimes like, could you just do this for me and tell me what's wrong and what I need yeah. to do? Yeah. Or I'm confused or I'm whatever. And I just need data. So where do I get data? No, we can right. get you the data, but if it, we're just for casting our net around IQ and personality and these other things, you know, what function is that really serving? Well, that happens in medicine a lot too. When we order a lot of labs or we do things like MRIs, I can't tell you how often something comes up on an MRI and you're like, does that mean anything? Now I exactly. got to call neurosurgery and say, no. is this important or is this just, you know, a blip? And oftentimes it's just that. But now you got to explain to the parent, well, they have the cyst. And mm -hmm. what does that mean? You know, anything abnormal on a brain scan? Oh, I'm Absolutely. scared. And we know how when we chat with families, particularly parents, if we say something in, in our world, it's like, well, it's not that big of a deal or like we can pay attention to it, but we're not going to jump on it yet. As parents who love their children, it sticks. And it's always that thing tapping them on the shoulder, which at some level, we may be doing a, some sort of disservice to the family dynamic as a result of putting the extra stressor within that. Oh, sure. Well, and then it weighs on me. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, well, or, or the oftentimes the radiologist may say it's probably not of any consequence, but you should repeat the MRI again in six months. Well, now they have to go through another MRI for kids may need to be sedated. It's mm -hmm. expensive. Mm -hmm. And is it really anything? But we're sort of chasing our tail because we kind of have to. Yeah. So I think it's called the maybe the Ulysses syndrome or something about ordering too many tests. And yeah, I was reading an article about that a few years ago, how we're almost trained to do that just to you know cover our rears at some level. But we also don't want to miss anything as clinicians. Right. But it's not always very helpful. It sometimes no. makes more of a problem. It sounds like we're sort Indeed. of on the same page on Indeed. that one. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I think is kind of developing in medicine, and I think is this really beautiful model is integrated behavioral health, where we have a behavioral health clinician in our practices that can help us through our day, because there's so many behavioral issues that come up. But I think there's, you know, sort of an extent of what they can do. I mean, if I had a psychologist in my office that ju just did assessments, that would be very different than pulling somebody in to do a crisis evaluation mm -hmm. or to help a kid with sleep. So when do you see that 
I might need to send them for this next higher level of care like you? I think it's really evaluating your resources. You know, how many days of the week is this person in your office? What is their skill set? You know, some people are really, really good at treating certain things, despite, you know, sort of working under psychology proper. And, you know, sometimes the needs of the client or the patient exceed that person's ability, their resources, whatever, for good, bad, or indifferent. That's just the way it is. So when we start to see, you know, interventions within the medical home, not really, there's not a return on that investment. That's when we have to start thinking, how do we get external resources involved, especially if there's some specialists in the area? Well, and I do think, you know, in working with our social workers, there are times where they'll say, you know, for example, this kiddo has a big trauma history. This is probably beyond what I can do Mm -hmm. in, you know, five brief visits because true integrated behavioral health isn't, you know, like regular sit on the couch kind of therapy. Indeed. So, and an assessment in what you're describing is really, it's a specialty within a specialty. Is that, indeed? is that true? Yeah, absolutely. And oftentimes when we, when I work with families who are kind of brought to me and we're identifying, let's say it's a behavioral disorder and it's, you know, a four or five year old or what have you, sometimes the blow is lessened when, Hey, like, let's talk about parenting when it comes from someone within a subspecialty, as opposed to someone who perhaps has only met them once or twice, because we can deliver the information to that parent in a way that they can hear it and then produce the, the intended outcome in the family as well. So just a final question, maybe it's a little nosy, but so you do these assessments all day long. I mean, does that get like tiresome? Do you wish you were doing therapy or, or do you love it? And there's enough variation that you're like, "Mm, this feeds my, my soul. There's enough variation in the last year has been bumpy. You know, when we all started, when the governor said, stay home, I I stayed home and I quickly transitioned into almost hundred percent therapeutic work for six or seven months just to kind of shake it out. And the need was there. There was a lot of extra stuff going on in people's lives where people were seeking me back out, whether I had a previous relationship with them or a new therapeutic context. And then I was like, man, I miss this assessment stuff. This is what I do. And so to answer the question that you directly asked, the the administration of the assessment, doing the IQ testing, watching a child to get behavioral observations, sometimes that can get a little repetitive. I I can give an IQ test quite quickly just because I've done so many of them and they're not that exciting, to be honest. For the person going through it, they think it's cool. But when you do a bunch, you know, it's like, all right, here we go again. The feedback is... The feedback session, I believe, is the most exhilarating part of the process as a clinician, you know, describing the data, you know, why I think that there's certain impairment and diagnosis we talk about for like two seconds, because we really spend a lot of time talking about intervention and how does this child or how does this person now use this information rather to set themselves up for success as they move forward into high school, college careers, et cetera. So seeing parents be validated on one level, because oftentimes they've known something's been going on for the longest time. They just thought it was either, you know, quote unquote phase, or they were going through something in the family. So they thought that was the origin of it. But to validate a a parent's perspective and to give them information to make informed decisions moving forward is just one of the most rewarding parts of the whole process. That's what, that's why I go through the first part of the stages with them through the assessment to have the feedback. Well, and I think this is where the marriage of science and psychology and relationships with people. And I mean, for me, you know, doing strep evaluations isn't that exciting, but having the relationship with the family that I can say, Mm -hmm. Hey, how's grandma doing? Because I know the grandmother of the family and we're having a discussion about something that's not just about strep throat. 
And so that opportunity, the history, I mean, I think people are interesting and their stories are interesting. Mm -hmm. And then if you can come up with some insight as to why their child's struggling, that must feel pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's very rewarding at a clinical level because like we're using our craft to help propel their success moving forward. We just have to know our craft really well. Right. Well, I hope this episode is helpful for those listening to understand what your craft is and how to partner up. Because I think, and I said earlier, you know, this isn't a solo sport. I mean, it's not just all about me knowing everything because Lord knows I do not. And that I, I have partners that can help me you know, the, the mental health piece of it, you know, whether it's counseling, whether it's assessment. And I think that's an important distinction. And I appreciate that you've sort of explained that. And then the school, you know, how, and how do we look at each other as being helpers? Absolutely. And we're all, we're all on the same team. We just do it in different ways. I love the, you know, in times of crisis, Mr. Rogers said, find the helpers. So yeah, we, we need to find our helpers too, to, to get us through tough, tough times with kids that are having a tough time. So Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And you've given me a lot to think about. And I hope that that listeners really can take away something. I think just the final closing piece that you said is it's most helpful to you if I share with you what I'm wondering about. Absolutely. And that's a good takeaway. So I'll have some other takeaways in the um, outtake of this and we'll put some things in the show notes. So if there's some resources that you want to share, I can put those on for listeners to look at. Indeed. So, well, thanks and have a good day and stay safe and let's hope COVID ends quickly. No doubt. Take care, Leah. Thank you so much to Dr. Chris Barnes for joining me today. Dr. Barnes really helped me understand how to best use a clinical psych report, which honestly can sometimes be 30 pages long to really help guide treatment and to come up with a plan for parents that makes sense. So number one, referral to a therapist or psychologist can mean several things. It can mean traditional counseling, or it can be for assessment. Assessments are usually done by PhD clinical psychologist or neuropsychologist. Number two, a psychological assessment helps to clarify diagnoses using evidence-based diagnostic tools that have sensitivity and specificity. This is a step beyond our screening tools, such as the Vanderbilt, the ASQ developmental screens, the PHQ, GAD7, SCARED, etc. Number three, the assessment includes parent and patient interviews and forming a hypothesis choosing tools, both a standard battery of tools, and then adding on additional tools that might be more helpful to really hone down the diagnosis. Testing sessions can be two to three hours long, and then there's finally a feedback session with the family. So these are pretty intensive and involved assessments. Number four, what looks like ADHD may be something else, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts, you know, you really have to think about, you know, outward behaviors may be generated by anxiety, trauma, learning disabilities, you know, just a whole host of things. And a psychologist can help sort this out. Number five, the reports can be long. They serve many, including parents and patients, schools, primary care, and sometimes even the courts. 
These generally include an IQ test to assess cognitive function, looking at achievement testing, mood evaluation tools to sort out if there's anxiety or depression, and sometimes other specialty tools. If you're not clear on the interpretation, just call the psychologist. You know, a phone call can make all the difference. Number six, a caution. If you're concerned about autism spectrum disorders, typical psych assessments don't cover these diagnoses and may require specialty evaluation at a center of excellence or with therapists who are specifically designated for this type of evaluation. And these usually include the ADOS or the ADIR, to name just a couple of common testing options. Number seven, collaborate with the psychologist, the primary care provider, and the school would be ideal to best serve the child. You know, our new Zoom options might offer this opportunity because if we're all talking about it, it really helps. If any of you have ever attended an IEP meeting, you know what I'm talking about. But these take time and, you know, are are difficult to do, but it's something to keep on the horizon. Number eight, the best advice. When you make a referral for psych testing, let the psychologist know what you are thinking about and what you want to clarify, confirm, or refute. Include background information, screens you may have completed, and get releases at the start, and always feel free to call. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope that you have a great rest of the day and appreciate everything you do for kids. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.